Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is one of the most legendary songwriters of all time, Barry Mann. Working together with his wife, Cynthia Weil, during the height of the Brill-building era, the songs Barry and Cynthia wrote are among the most evergreen and beloved titles of all time. Songs like You've Lost That Love and Feelin', On Broadway, We Gotta Get Out of This Place, Kicks, Somewhere Out There, and Sometimes When We Touch. Artists to record Man and Weil's classics include some of the biggest names of all time. Dolly Parton, Linda Ronstadt, Dionne Warwick, Neil Diamond, Frank Sinatra, and Elvis Presley. Barry Mann has received 46 BMI Millionaire Awards for radio performances numbering more than one million plays. And his song, You've Lost That Love and Feelin', co-written with Cynthia Weil and Phil Spector, was BMI's most played song of the entire 20th century, with more than 14 million plays. In 1987, Mann and Weil were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and in 2011, that same institution bestowed upon them the Johnny Mercer Award, the highest honor given out. Barry and Cynthia were also inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2010, when they received the Ahmet Erdogan Award and were inducted by their good friend, Carol King. Top all of that off with two Grammys and an Academy Award, and you're in for quite the conversation. I'd like to thank the guy who wrote the song that made my baby fall in love with me. Who put the bump in the bump a bump a bump? Who put the rhyme in the ramalama ding dong? Who put the bop in the bop shabop shabop? Who put the dip in the dip 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 dip? Who was that man? I'd like to shake his hand. He made my baby fall in love with me. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to another edition of Rock and Roll High School. I'm Pete Ganborg from Atlantic Records, and I am thrilled today to be able to interview one of the most legendary songwriters of all time. Along with his wife, Cynthia Weil, Barry Mann has been creating the soundtrack of our lives since the 1950s. So I would love to be able to start our program today by introducing Barry Mann. Hi, Barry. Hi. How you doing today, Barry? Okay, I, I think we're going to have some fun here. Yeah, absolutely. I, w whenever I get ready to do an interview with someone like yourself, I, I spend a lot of time deep diving and researching and listening to music and listening to our guests speak. And, and, and there's just so much to talk about that I don't want to waste a lot of time um, you know, with introductions, I, I would just love to dive right in because the music that you and Cynthia have created is really, you know, the soundtrack to our lives and, and part of the cultural fabric of our times. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't turn on the radio and hear a song that, that you and Cynthia wrote or that you wrote with somebody else or that she wrote with somebody else. So absolutely thrilled to uh, be talking to you today. Great. I'm thrilled also. So before we start, I would love to give 
a little bit of a uh, of an intro by way of some of the accolades that you and Cynthia have received in your career. You've written yourself, Barry, you've written 98 songs that have been called hits by the wise men and women of the internet. You've received 56 pop country and R&B awards from BMI, 46 millionaire awards for songs receiving more than 1 million plays at radio, two Grammy award wins, including Song of the Year in 1987 for your song Somewhere Out There. You're the winner of the Trustees Award at the Grammys in 2014, a member of the class of 1987 in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. You and Cynthia received the Johnny Mercer Award, which is the Songwriting Hall of Fame's highest honor in 2011. You are a winner of the Ahmed Erdogan Award, which got you inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2010 with Cynthia. You were inducted by your good friend, Carol King. Mm. And you and Cynthia received the first ever Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Academy of Songwriters. That's a lot. Phew. <laughs> Anything I've forgotten? <laughs> no, but it, it's, it's really interesting to hear, hear that. Yeah, um, that's a lot. And yeah. You, you were born in, in Flatbush in Brooklyn. That's right. In the late 1930s. And your birth name is not Barry Mann. It's Barry Imberman. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it was Barrett Martin Imberman. And ultimately, you changed your name from Barrett Martin Imberman, very formal-sounding name, to right. Barry Mann when you were a recording artist yourself. I, know, I thought that Barrett Martin Imberman was a little bit clumsy. And uh, I think Barrett, Barry Mann, as a matter of fact, it would have been even better to say Barrett Mann. That even sounds a little bit more showbiz. But you settled on Barry Mann, and that's done okay for yourself. Oh, yeah. Before you were Barry Mann, I read that you were Buddy Brooks. Do you remember that? Oh, my God. That's, that's, <laughs> that's one of my forays in trying to be have another hit. Um, well, <laughs> let's back up. So you, you were born in Brooklyn. You went to James Madison High School. Right. You graduated. You were the president of your senior class. You graduated two years before Carol King. And I right. read three years before Bernie Sanders. So a lot of really interesting people came out of James Madison High School in, in Brooklyn. Unbelievable. There are probably, I think, four or five Nobel laureates. The basketball player, Rudy LaRusso, who played for the, the Lakers. Did, did Ruth Bader Ginsburg go to? That's that right. Ruth Bader Ginsburg went there. Yeah. And, and you were, uh, from what I read, you were a big man on campus. You were the leader of the chorus, the president of your class. I also read that... Jerry Goffin, who we'll talk about, was born also in Brooklyn, literally two days after you. Yes, but Carol King was born, as, well, Carol King's birthday is the exact same birthday as mine. Wow. So I read also that by all accounts, you had what seems like a typical Brooklyn upbringing of the 40s and 50s. My mom grew up in Brooklyn in the 40s and 50s, so I grew uh -huh. up with these stories where you lived in small living quarters. You had a loving mom who really took a big interest in you, made sure that you got piano lessons, took you to Broadway shows. What do you remember about growing up in Brooklyn in, in the 40s? Funny, the first thing that hits me is me playing basketball. Uh, and that's, that's, for some reason, that stays on my mind. But I, I, Brooklyn, it, it really has, it's very neighborly. 
it's almost almost like living in the country in a certain way. But I, I, I like my childhood very much. And I, I think that's because of, again, the neighborly atmosphere that, that, that was created there. So you remember basketball before you remember music. That's true. Even though I, I could probably sing you the first song that I became conscious that music could, could really do something to you. There's a song called Give Me Five Minutes More. I don't know if you know it. Who Give was that? Five, Give me five minutes more, only five minutes more. Oh, only five minutes more of your charms. Anyway, that was probably when I was about eight years old. And uh, Who was the artist on that one? I think it might have been the Andros Sisters. Uh, it was some, some band, someone from, from a band at that time. Well, I read that you listened to a lot of Martin Block in the make-believe ballroom back then. Yes, I was going to say that. That's, that's true. Now, I, I don't remember if it was the top 20 or the top, top 30, but uh, I enjoyed listening to that a lot. That was the soundtrack of the time, for sure. It, it was, and then you worked as a busboy in the Catskills, I read. That's and right. And started messing around as a teenager with songwriting. Yes. I mean, there's much more of a, of a story to my messing around as a teenager. I uh, had a friend named Will Levins. I was passing the music room in, in my junior high school, and I heard somebody playing piano. And I really liked what I heard, so I went in there, and it's my friend Will Levins. And I said, gee, I really, I, I really like some of that. And I had not, had not taken any lessons at all. And uh, so I found out his piano teacher, and uh, I took lessons with her just to learn the basics of piano. And I, I really hated it, by the way. <laughs> so I learned a little bit, of, uh, like I said, the basics. And then about six months later, I passed the room again, and this time I heard songs that were some of the hits of the day. Again, I said, I'd like some of that, because he also happened to play piano very well also. So I did that, and I found out he was taking piano lessons from a very good piano teacher who taught popular music. You know, what he would do, he would take lead sheets or sheet music and he would teach you how to improvise. So I, I started to learn how to improvise. And along the way, for some reason, I picked up a ukulele. The ukulele, again, uh, uh, the lead sheets, uh, over, over the lyrics, they, they had the chord, the fingerings that you would have on the ukulele. And uh, I learned a lot of transposing uh, because of that. For some reason, it really uh, caught my fancy. It was a, a way to even expand my, my knowledge of music, as silly as it might sound. And then you worked your way to the Catskills and met a bunch of people who ended up be, becoming very important yeah, yeah. in your life as a songwriter. Yeah, before that happened, again, Will Levins, I, one more incident with Will Levins, passed the same room again, and I hear him singing. And he's singing songs, the hits of that period. And when I went in there, he was surrounded by some of the girls. And I said, I really want some of that. Hmm. You know, I also enjoyed the song that he was singing. And I said to him, what's that song? I don't know it. And he said, well, I wrote it. I said, I, th I think I could try and do that. I think I, wow. can, I, can, I can really do that. 
And I started writing songs. And I just was writing for myself. I had no feeling that I was going to go into the music business. And as a matter of fact, I was going to study architecture, which is what I did. I started, I went to Pratt Institute for the first year. I couldn't picture myself as an architect, so I quit my second year. How'd your mother feel about that, Barry? My mother was worried about me. My father said he washes his hands of me, you know. <laughs> as if he was guiding my career to begin with, which he really wasn't. You got to understand, my father was an accountant. So uh, so he wanted uh, you to be a professional. Yeah, he wanted, yeah, exactly, a professional. And uh, my mother, being nervous that I would end up doing no good to myself, she brought me to the a woman who was... A guidance counselor? A guidance counselor. I, I couldn't think of it. And she said to her, look, why not let him try? You have nothing to lose, you know? So it was, it, it was your mom's friend, who was a friend of the family, was a guidance counselor, yeah. who convinced your mom, hey, this is a passion, this is a hobby. Why don't you encourage Barry to see how far he can get with it? And, and also another funny thing is that her name was Edna Levins. She happened to be Will Levins' <laughs> mother. That's funny. Did Will Levins ever pursue songwriting himself? I became a lawyer. <laughs> so he took the professional track. You took the right. songwriter track. <laughs> right. Matter of fact, when I was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I, I had Will Levins there at, at, at a table. Oh, that's great. And, yeah, it really was. And uh, and I when I when in my speech, I said, I, I, I told the story that I was telling you. And I said, but Will Levins could improvise much better than I could. And he stood up and said, you're damn right I could. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't only Will, but his mom, who were both integral in your career path. Right, right. His father helped me not fail English. <laughs> so so he, he was an English teacher? Yeah, yeah he was an English teacher <laughs> and, a, and a gym teacher. There you go. <laughs> so how did you then go from that... A meeting with Edna to really dipping your toe a little more formally into the waters of songwriting? Well, I had written about, I don't know, about five or six songs already. Again, just for me. And as you said before, I, I worked up in the mountains as a busboy, the Catskills. They would have talent shows and I would end up, you know, singing in the talent shows and I'd be singing the songs that I wrote. So one of the guests came over to me after the, after the show and he asked me who wrote those songs. And I said, well, I, I wrote those songs. And he, he said, really? He said, did you ever think of being going into the music business? And I said, no, I can't do that. I'm going to be an architect. He said, well, look, if you change your mind, he took out a card and he gave it to me. For some reason, I held on to the card. I don't know why. After I quit college, I looked around for the card and I found it gave him a call, and he said, well, come on up. So I gathered all my five songs. I took the, at that time, it was called the BMT, and I got out at 49th Street. And of course, as it so happens, uh, the building that, that he was in was the Brill Building. So that was 1619 Broadway, the, the Brill Building, right. Right, which is interesting because when people want to, have a, a label for me. They say I'm one of the Bill Building songwriters. Well, you're not. Literally, I mean, uh, you're, you're, I, you wrote at 
Aldon, which was 1650 Broadway, but that, 1619, right. we can say the Brill Building era. That that makes sense, right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I always, in a way, I, I kind of felt it was an insult because I, I, I wrote a lot of hits during the, in the, the 60s, but I also wrote, wrote hits into the 70s and the 80s. And the 90s. So, and the 90s, that's I mean, that, true. That's one thing that is is so impressive to me as I said, as I was doing my research for today, that a lot of your contemporaries, you know, who wrote either at Aldon or in the Brill Building, you know, mm. they didn't have hits after that. You and Cynthia mm. had hits, you know, the, the, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. You won the Grammy Award for Song of the Year in the late 1980s. So your career, you know, has, has surpassed the timing of of the success of a lot of your contemporaries. And that's a, a testament to your and Cynthia's talent. You know something, it's so great to hear you say that because that's one of my frustrations has been to be known as someone who's ambidextrous when it came to writing songs. And you had the ability, your songwriting had mm. the ability to transcend any specific time or place. You know, That's if you true. listen to Who Put the Bomb or you mm -hmm. listen to Blame It on the Bossa Nova, that's in one place. Then you right. go to We Gotta Get Out of This Place or Kicks or Hungry, that's another place. That's then right. you go to Sometimes When We Touch or How Much Love, that's even another place, but we're yeah. not even done yet. You know, then it's <laughs> somewhere out there and it's, you know, Sergio Mendez, Never Gonna Let You Go, which, right. you know, when I was in high school, these were the songs that I was listening to having no idea who wrote them. Uh -huh. And like I said before, even to the mid to late 1990s, with Hanson. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's it's definitely noticed by me because as, as somebody who studies this stuff, you know, there are not a lot of songwriters who have that longevity. Right. Well, the one thing that was frustrating to me is that I did have a hit, of course. I had a hit who put the bomb where I sang. I sang the, the song. But it was a frustration that I didn't continue with that because that way I... I I'd be known more. Well, did you want to be? I know you've you've recorded and released a lot of albums, but was it important to you to be as successful as an artist as it was to be as successful as a songwriter? Well, one of the main reasons I wanted to be successful as an artist was because as a songwriter, I, I, I cut out the middleman. You know, I, I didn't have to go to an A and R person. That was the, uh, an easier way to get of getting records. Right. If I sing it myself, and right. that's what I did. So do you look back, because there's some really interesting moments in your career after Who Put the Bomb, when you know Al, and, and Al Nevins and, and Don Kirshner had gotten you a, a recording contract, and you recorded We Gotta Get Out of This Place, and it was going to come out, and then oh, Good right. News, Bad News... You know, the bad news is, well, your version's not going to come out. The good news is your song is now a big hit with another artist called The Animals in, yeah. in England. See, that's one of the times where I, I, I could have been, been a contender, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so it must have been, you know, kind of, um, you know, yeah. sweet but sour at the same time. It, you know? it was frustrating. I mean, Donnie Kirshner called me and Cynthia into his office. And he basically said, I got good news and, and I got bad news. So I said, well, lay it on me. 
So he said, uh, I'll give you the good news first. Uh, he said, we've got to get out of this place. It's number two in England. And the bad news is, of course, we, we're not get, we can't release your record because you can't be in competition with the animals. You know, your, your, your record would die. But at least I, at least I had a hit at him. Yeah, you had you had a big hit, but I, I read that you and Cynthia did not like what the animals and Mickey Most did to your song. Yeah, I mean it was a jolt because we wrote the song uh, originally for the Righteous Brothers, and we cut a demo for the Righteous Brothers, which had the the, the flavor of the Righteous Brothers. So uh, when we heard the animals version, it was a real jolt to our system. First of all, they changed the lyric a little bit too. Eric Burden and, and the animals were basically, they, they come from coal mining people, yep. you know. Mm-hmm. And we wrote a song based for, for a girl who wanted to get out of the, wanted to get out of that place. Right. So, uh, so Cynthia couldn't have been too happy when she heard what they oh, did to her lyrics. Especially Cynthia. I mean, <laughs> she, she was known that anybody touches her lyrics, they're dead. I, I love the story of how you and Cynthia met. The fact that you had started writing songs and you had started having some success with Steve Lawrence and Dickie Lee and, um, you know, even I Love How You Love Me with um, originally for Tony Orlando, but ultimately stolen by uh, a new person in your life, Phil Spector, who cut it on on the Paris Sisters. Tell us the story of how you and Cynthia met and how Cynthia almost stalked you to, uh, to start the relationship. Yeah, it's funny. I, I was going to tell the story, but I, I kind of held back because when I tell the story, it sounds like it sounds very egotistical. Oh, but, I'm, ha- I'm happy to tell but, it, but I wasn't there. <laughs> but it's true. I went up to play a song for a guy named Teddy Randazzo. He was like the handsome young, young singer of, of, of that time. And when I went in there, this beautiful blonde was standing there at the, at the doorway, and uh, she didn't say anything. And I played the song, and then I left. But I heard that afterwards, she said, who was that guy who, who, who just sat down at the piano and, and made magic, you know? She thought and, you were cute. Yes, she thought I was cute. <laughs> And she was right. I was cute. (laughs) (laughs) She was actually in a session with Teddy Randazzo that day writing a song. And you and Howie Greenfield came up to pitch a song to Teddy Randazzo, right? That's right. That's right. And we had the the record came out and we had the A side. She had the B side that she wrote with Teddy Randazzo. Anyway, so she wanted to, uh, she said to the the uh, secretary who was there, who was that guy? And and she said, well, look, you look, his name is Barry Mann, and he's with a publishing company called All the Music, run by Donnie Kirshner. And she she said, I'm I'm friendly with Donnie. If you want, I could give him a call, and you could bring your lyrics. She was a lyricist back then too, and you could bring your lyrics, 
uh, and and go up there and show up to Donnie and maybe you'll meet the guy there. So she did that. The first time she went, Kircher said he liked her lyrics and he said, I know exactly who you should be writing with. And she was and, hoping that he would say it was you, but you, he said exactly. somebody else. It's, uh, uh, like a 15 or 16-year-old girl walked out and it's Carol King. And so she didn't have me, but she had Carol for a short period. And she and she was disappointed that she wasn't paired with you initially, that she was paired with Carol. And she exactly. she tells Cynthia tells a great story about her first meeting and session with Carol. But I, I'd love before we tell that, I'd love to tell our audience a little bit about Cynthia, because you yes. were born in Brooklyn, but Cynthia That's was right. born in Manhattan. And grew up with a much different lifestyle and a much different upbringing than you did. Her family was, I I don't know if you would say that she was born of privilege, but she lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And Mm -hmm. show business was a little bit verboten, except there was an aunt that she had on her mother's side who was the bad seed of the family, who was a chorus girl. That's right. Exactly. That's how Cynthia ended up writing with Teddy Randazzo, because her her aunt knew Kenny Greengrass, who was the manager of Teddy Randazzo and Stephen Eady. She was actually published in the beginning by Frank Lesser, right? That's right. Frank Lesser, who wrote Guys and Dolls, one of the legendary Broadway composers. Yeah, And he he treated her really nicely. He, he, He said, I like the lyrics. Just why don't you just hang around here and uh, you'll learn. And Cynthia grew up as a musical theater fan. That's right. And so when you and she started writing, it was on you to educate her as to artists like the Drifters and the Everly Brothers because she didn't know the music, right? That's right. I told her to listen to all those records, even, even Presley. You know, so I I can't, she, I can't imagine that once you and she started dating, that her mother was too thrilled. Yeah, her mother was not too thrilled. Matter of fact, when I was introduced to her mother for the first time, I, I, I wore cowboy boots at the time, and she said to Cynthia, "Does she have bad feet?" <laughs> On the Upper West Side of Manhattan in the nineteen fifties, they probably weren't used to seeing a lot of cowboy boots. Right. You know, I mean, she. she she didn't really pay much attention until, until Edie Gourmet recorded Blame It on the Bossa Nova. That she knew, so she, she became a little bit more interest, interested well, in. You, you and Cynthia wrote your first hit together in 1961, which was Bless You for, for Tony Orlando, right? Yeah, that wasn't my first hit. I had had... Right, you had had a, you had a Steve Lawrence, and you had had Who Put the Bump. You had a bump, bunch of hits, but your first hit together with Cynthia That's right. was That's "Bless right. You." And and I thought that it was really interesting. Something I read. There's a great book called um, "Magic in the Air" by Ken Emerson, which That's is right. the history of the Brill Building. I love the fact not only is is the book required reading for anyone who's interested, and in not only you know you and and Cynthia and Carol and Jerry, but also all the other great writing teams from the Brill Building era, but mm-hmm. the fact that he titled his book Magic in the Air, which is a lyric from your song on Broadway. That's right. Exactly. So you and 
you and Cynthia in 1961 was a big year for you guys because not only did you have your first hit together as a writing team, but you also got married in 1961. That's right. And this year is your 60th wedding anniversary. So happy early wedding anniversary. Thank you very much. And I, I love what I read in Ken Emerson's book about the recording session for Bless You with Tony Orlando where nobody could seem to get the rhythm right until somebody um, turned the percussion into something that was familiar to you from growing up Jewish in Brooklyn in the 1940s and 50s. It was the Hava Nagila beat. I mean, dun, 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 dun. Yeah, that's wild. I, I never heard that story. Yeah, but it's it's true, right? Yes. I was going to ask if if her mother ever, um, you know, became okay with the fact that you guys were married. But you you said once Edie Gourmet had blame it on the bossa nova, you were okay. Yeah. She ended up loving me. You know? <laughs> some some of the colleagues back then in in the Brill Building era, whether at Alden or at the actual physical Brill Building in 1619. We talked about Jerry and Carol. We'll talk about them more. We talked about Howie Greenfield, who you wrote with, and Neil Sedaka, Carol Bayer Sager, Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich, Lieber and Stoller, who we'll talk about. I mean, what are the odds, you know, even Doc Pomus and, and Mort Schumann, and what are the odds of all these people being within a block of each other at the same time, writing these iconic songs together? Some of the greatest songwriters and some of the greatest songs of all time uh, came within this two-block radius within the same mm, time. You know, it's nuts. I, I don't know why that happened. I, it, it, you know, I always thought of Carol and, and, and Jerry and Cynthia and myself, we always thought of ourselves as the, the chain. Almost like Tin Pan Alley to the rock. Exactly, right? exactly. Mm-hmm. We were, we were, Exactly. And, you know, so there there was an era of pop standards, you know, some of the records that Martin Block would have played on the, on the Make Believe Ballroom. And then later with the Beatles and rock and roll, you know, you and Cynthia and Carol and Jerry were definitely the link between the old guard and, and the new guard. And the fact that you guys were doing it all together, I, I found it interesting that you and Cynthia and Jerry and Carol King um, were best friends, but yes, you were also I mean, fierce competitors. Absolutely. Exactly. And we felt a little guilty for, for that. I mean, you know, Donnie Kirshner would say, that's the publisher, Donnie Kirshner would say, the drifters drift are up. Why don't you try writing a song for her? So Carol and Jerry would write for the drifters, and we'd write for the drifters. And, and if they got the, end up getting the record, we hated them. And then we felt guilty for hating them because we really loved them too. <laughs> and and it went both ways. They, they felt the same thing. So it was healthy competition, but competition yeah, nonetheless. Yes, yes, but it just it's screwed up with my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> A whole new generation of fans were introduced to your music, your and Cynthia's music, through the musical about Carol's life, Beautiful. Where Jared Spector, the actor, played uh, you brilliantly um, in the show. And it's funny, I have a daughter who is a big musical theater fan. And she's 24 years old. And I told her that I was interviewing you for 
our session today and she said, oh, I know Barry Mann. That's beautiful. That's Cynthia White. You know, she was talking uh, like an expert, but she only uh, knew the music from the musical, you know, which which right. is such a brilliant musical. There, there are so many jukebox oh. musicals that are, you know, the music's great, but the, the story isn't, the book isn't. And that show right. succeeded because the book is as good as the music. Uh, that's right. Absolutely. And I, I like the way they he, he nailed everybody's personality, especially mine. <laughs> you come off real nice in that show, uh, like like a well, like a hypochondria. <laughs> and, and then and, and which it pissed me off when I first heard it, and then I realized I am a hypochondriac. <laughs> so, but and also, you know, sticking on the topic of of musical theater for a moment, a good buddy of mine who's actually responsible for me being in the music business. I remember back in the early two thousands, he called me and was raving about a show that he had just seen called They Wrote That. And that was oh. you and, and Cynthia's show about the, you know, the songs and the stories behind the music that you guys created. He was yeah. just, I, I, I'm sorry, I never got to see it personally, but he was just raving about it. And I remember it to this day, 15 years later, how much he loved that show. Yeah, but again, it was very hard for us to take it on the road. Cynthia... Cynthia didn't really want to want to have that kind of life, but uh, it was enjoyable to do. It was nice doing that show. Yeah, put you in front of the microphone again. That's right. So I'd love to dig deep into some of your songs. And okay. as as I was getting ready to um, to come on and talk to you today, I was thinking we could literally, you know, be here for days just talking about these songs because. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm thrilled that the audience is going to get to hear not only some of the songs, but the stories behind the songs. Your first hit as a songwriter was She Say by the Diamonds in 1959. Right. And that was a bit of a novelty song similar yes. to your own song a few years later, Who Put the Bomb in the Bomb, Bomb, Bomb. Yeah. And then I, then I learned how to speak English. <laughs> <laughs> she say And were you writing songs mainly music and melody back then, or or did you ever fancy yourself a lyricist as well? Absolutely, I did. Because when I started writing, of course I did both lyrics and music, but uh, I've written songs by myself that that I really like a lot. There was a song called There's No Easy Way that James Ingram sang, and it's a beautiful, beautiful song where I wrote the lyrics and the music. And there are a few others like that. Well, you got to work with so many incredible singers. You mentioned James Ingram. And I, I want to touch later on the story about the the demo of, of Just Once. But James Ingram was, sure. was one of the great singers of our time. Oh, un- unbelievable. Tell everybody the story of James Ingram and, and the demo of your, your and Cynthia's song, yeah. Just Once. Well, Cynthia and I heard that Quincy Jones was about to record George Benson. So we went home and we wrote a song. We wrote just once. And and I usually sang uh, on the demos, but I felt that this song needed uh, uh, More soulful kind of an R, you know, yeah. R&B, mm-hmm. R, uh, a band. 
And so we, we got the name of this guy, James Ingram, from somebody up at the publishing company that I was with at the time. And uh, we, we, we met him. He came up there and, he, and I gave him, a, I did a piano voice demo for him to learn. And he went into another room and, and, and was learning the, the song. I had also cut a track. So when he was done learning the song, he came out and he walked into the studio and he went behind the mic. The track started and he started to sing and we nearly fell on the floor. I mean, I, th I started to hyperventilate. He was so incredible. He ended up having a, a hit with that song. Just once, can we figure out what we keep doing wrong? Why we never last for very long? What are we doing wrong? And he had a career. Yeah, and, 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 and a big hit, a Song of the Year Grammy win um, with Linda Ronstadt a few years later for Somewhere Out There with James Ingram that, as well. That's right. So it, it's nice that a lot of the singers who sang your songs became not just, you know, hey, we'll sing this one song and move on, but they became really the the mouthpiece literally for for some of your and Cynthia's work and James yeah. and Linda you know are two examples of that I mean that happened with Bill Medley yeah. Yeah, definitely definitely I want to talk about that for sure but before we talk sure. about Bill Medley let's talk a little bit more about Phil Spector because I mentioned the song that you had co-written with <clears throat> with I think Larry Colbert was his name that was his name, yes. So you and Larry wrote a song called I Love How You Love Me, which he started writing on a napkin and came over to the building looking for anyone who could write some music to it, and you happened to be there at the right place at the right time. Right. And you wrote I Love How You Love Me, which was originally going to be sung by Tony Orlando. But talk about that moment when you were playing the song for Donnie Kirshner and Phil Spector raised his hand, and I'm not sure if that was the first time that you had ever met Phil, but, but talk a little bit about Phil. It could have been, by the way, the first time. But Phil was, you know, he's a really a character. And look, the truth is that he had, he had a, a, a mental an illness. You know, he was, he was uh, what do you call it? By, bipolar. By, bipolar. Mm -hmm. So and it affected everything that he did. He, he got worse uh, as time went on, you know. When I when I wrote the song, uh, it was uh, I love how your eyes close whenever you kiss me, and they made when when you're away from me. I love how you miss me. Then this part, I love the way you always da 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 da. That that part was not in the song when I wrote it originally, and I played it for Cynthia, and Cynthia said, you know, it really needs something more. And uh, I ended up rewriting this, this song with, wow. with that musical uh, refrain in there. Wow. And it, then it became a big hit. I love how your eyes close whenever you kiss me and when I'm away from 
what's interesting about the lyric that you just quoted is there's a similar lyric that starts another song that you and Cynthia and and Phil Spector worked on, which is, of course, You've Lost That Love and Feeling. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. That's right. Which I read Um, is your lyric. It it was. It was my lyric. I don't know. It just happened that, you know, I I usually didn't didn't write lyrics with Cynthia. She wrote the lyrics. That was it. So for some reason, I came up with that line. That's an iconic line right there. Yeah, it, it ended up being an iconic line. So the Paris sisters have this hit with uh, Phil Spector on your song. Uh, and then did Phil, after I Love How You Love Me, did Phil start coming around Alden more looking for songs for his act? Yes, yes, he did. And so talk yes. about the crystals and talk about Uptown. Uptown. Cynthia and I really felt that we really wanted to write something that was a sociological song. It really started first when Cynthia would go down at the uh, the clothing area in, in New York. The garment district, and she, right. The garment district, mm-hmm. and, she, and she saw this beautiful-looking black man pushing a, a rack of clothes. That triggered the idea of, of, uh, of, of the song. The whole idea of downtown, you're one person, and That's then right. uptown, you're somebody else, you're your real self, your true self. Uh, exactly. And, and it's interesting that you mention, you know, writing sociologically, because so many of your songs that you and Cynthia wrote were l- leagues above the typical pop songs of, of the time. You know, whether it's Uptown or We Gotta Get Out of This Place or Magic Town, the Vogue song, or or Paul Revere and the Raiders' version of Kicks, which you wrote about a friend's um, drug abuse. You know, right. e- even only in America, or none of us are free. I mean, there there's so many songs that are so much more than just words and melody. Yes, only in America. You, you know the story of that. Yeah, I, I, I would love for you to tell it. Sure, we wrote it with Lieber and Stoller, by the way. At one point, we we thought we'd maybe try writing it a different way, which was only in America where they preach the golden rule, do they start to march when my kids want to go to school? Only in America, let an opportunity, do they save a seat in the back of the bus just for me? And I would have loved to write the lyric, have, write it that way, but Jerry Lieber said, you'll never get it played. Um, but the ironic thing about it, the, the drifters were, were originally on the, on the, on the track and, and on the record originally. And when they, when they, the, the record company uh, brought it around to, to, to R&B disc jockeys, they wouldn't play the record because they felt that it was a lie then. You know, right, uh, right. It was too political. That label, ironically, is Atlantic, where we're, we're talking to you from today. The issue with the original lyric, I guess Jerry was always, Jerry Lieber was always yeah. very 
blunt about what's going to work and what's not going to work and thinking with a commercial sensibility. So you and Cynthia had to change the lyrics. I, I read that the adjective to use in the rewrite was sanitized, where you had to sanitize the lyrics a little bit. And That's right. you know, ultimately, the version that became the successful hit version of Only in America was by Jay and the Americans, Americans ironically, right. Only in America by Jay and the Americans. And it's a right. very whitewashed version of the original composition as you and Cynthia imagined it, right? Well, it was true. It, it was true for for white artists. Of course, you you can grow up to be president. You know, right? You could have a fancy car, right? But it didn't. It didn't make as as much sense. You know, it, it almost was insulting if the drifters were going to sing it at that time and place. Exactly. And ironically, only in America became a big hit in Miami with the Cuban population who couldn't speak English. They only spoke Spanish, mm. but they learned every word of that song phonetically because for them, it was aspirational. Leaving uh, Cuba, exactly. only in America, you know? Wow. I'm saying, wow, that I, I never knew that the Cuban population really loved that song. Yeah, I, I read that story. That was uh, Kenny Vance, who was part of Jay and the Americans, told that sure. story amazing about the power of that song, even in, you know, a sanitized version that you had to mm -hmm. redo. Only in America can a guy from anywhere go to sleep a pauper and wake up a millionaire. We talked a little bit about Blame It on the Bossa Nova, but let's talk about On Broadway, because you talked about Jerry Lieber um, mm -hmm. encouraging you or suggest, strongly suggesting that you rewrite the words to Only in America. Uh, he did a similar thing with On Broadway. You want to talk about that? Cynthia and I originally wrote on Broadway a different way. It had a whole different bent. Just Cynthia and I wrote it alone. And it was, I hear the neon lights are bright on Broadway. I hear that dreams come true there every day. The end line is, I got to get there. I got to get there someday. So it, it had a whole different, different storyline. There was no there was no disillusionment. It was all positive. It was all happy. It was, I'm going to get to Broadway and I'm going to make it. Exactly. That's right. And I heard that, that Danny Kirshner really liked the song when we played it, played it from that way. But he felt that it, it, it really lacked something. And he, 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 he ended up calling up Lieber and Stoller and saying, you know, Mary and Cynthia have this song, that, I, but it's really incomplete. It's really not a song. Maybe you guys can end up rewriting it with them. And so we went up to play it for uh, Lieber and Stola, not knowing that Kirshen had even talked to him, but because they were about to cut the drifters. And we felt the song, melodically, of course, would be great for the drifters. They said, well, look, you know, we're, we're cutting the drifters. This song would be great, but, but it, the tense is wrong. I mean, we should re... If you want, you could rewrite the song, go home and rewrite it yourself, or you could write it with us. And we jumped at the, at the chance to write with Lieber and Stola. 
Because they were they were your idols at the time, right? Uh, that's right. They really were. The writing process was so exciting. Just the way they would throw out lines. You know, Cynthia being an obsessive person, that personality, she, she was writing a, a song. She'd have to make, make sure that she'd have to go in chronological order. You know, she'd have to finish, make sure the first verse was finished, and go <laughs> on to the second verse and, and so on. You know, and Jerry and Mike but, didn't work that way, right? No, they didn't at all. You know, if they got stuck on a line on the first verse, they'd say, hey, "Let's jump ahead to the the, the chorus." <laughs> you know, and it was exciting. They were just throwing out lines. Cynthia would throw out lines too, because she got caught up in that kind of songwriting. It was a beautiful, beautiful experience. And they ended up really changing the whole essence of the company. Yes, that's right. So, um, so in the in the famous version, the Drifters version, or even you know the version that everyone has heard covered by you know whether it's George Benson or Neil Young or even Sly and the Family Stone, so many amazing people right. have covered on Broadway. It's more real. It's more you know there. It's, it's not all happy endings. Exactly right. One of the great things of of a song that ends up getting covered, you know, when George Benson who you mentioned earlier, you know, later would work with Quincy. But when, when George covered on Broadway, George was known primarily as a guitarist as much as he was as a singer. So mm -hmm. the lyric of, I'm going to make right. it, you know, I'll go far because I can play this here guitar. He could <laughs> play the guitar literally. Right. And so and then he when he starts playing the guitar in the live version, of, of mm -hmm. you know the hit version from from the live album that that George had in the seventies, it's real mm -hmm. you know because he is playing that guitar and he right. is going to make it on Broadway. There were slight changes, but there were really great changes melodically. You know, on Broadway is basically one verse repeated two times, just by just by modulating. It, this, this this was my, Mike's uh, contribution. Um, you know, it's it basically melodically. It, it's it's they said da 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 da. Anyway. You, and that was the melody sounds, you brought in, and then Mike changed he, it. He, well, he didn't change it. He, he he said, "Why don't you, why don't you just modulate, go to the next key, and modulate one more time?" And that's what we did. Mm. But if you look at it, it's just like I say, it's it's really like a verse, and and but just by modulating. Right. It, it ended up, you know, having much more power. Well, that modulation is really powerful on George Benson's version too, because oh, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. with with his scatting, and yeah. you know, lyric singing and guitar playing, you know, the modulation yes. really is powerful. Yes, right. So we'd be remiss if we didn't spend some time talking about "You've Lost That Love and Feeling." Oh yeah, because you know, for a song that has been. BMI has said that this song is ranked as the most played song on American radio and television 
in the entire 20th century. That That's right. L- let, me, let me read some, some stats just on you've lost that love and feeling. You know, by, by the, the year 2000, it had accumulated more than 8 million airplay in, in America, uh, nearly 15 million by 2011. And it's also the most performed song in the entire catalog of BMI, which when you think of how many hundreds of thousands of songs are in that catalog, Mm -hmm. You've Lost That Love and Feeling is the most performed song in the entire BMI catalog. Right. I think that, I think another song just took its place, but- but Well, that's not important. Yeah, but I realize. (laughs) (laughs) But it'll come up again. Absolutely. Talk, Talk about- um, the origin of the song. Phil had asked you and Cynthia to write a song for the Righteous Brothers. Well, uh, it wasn't quite as quick as that. Um, we were living in New York, and he was in L.A., and uh, we wanted to, he wanted to write with us. So uh, we ended up flying out to, to uh, California to write with him. We got together with him, and, and he, the first thing he did, he, he played us a, a record, it was, it was by this group, and it was a very R&B. It, it was like talking about my baby, you baby, dan, dan, and she's so fine. And and he said, look, the name of the, these are the Righteous Brothers. And he said, uh, I want to write for them. And I said, well, that's great. I ended up, for some reason, I just felt we could write a ballad, and, and, and it would be terrific. And... Uh, at the t- time, Baby, I Need Your Lovin' was, was out. You know, Baby, I Need Your Lovin'. The Four Tops, of course. The Four Tops. So I, I really thought that that would be really great to have have something that had that kind of, in, in, you know, that kind of impact. So uh, we went back We went back to the, the hotel, and we wrote a verse and a chorus. We wrote two verses, and we didn't know how to end the chorus, so we called up Phil. But that's unimportant. What's important, we wrote a great song. Now we had to to play it for the Righteous Brothers. So the next day, the Righteous Brothers came in, and and Phil and I and and Cynthia played the song. We looked at Bill and Bobby. They were just quiet, you know. And then then I heard him say, it would be great for the Everly Brothers. (laughs) But the reason that he said that is because I I really, really love the Everly Brothers, so I sang like the Everly Brothers. So it was so, your, your voice was a lot higher register than Bill Medley's yes, voice, which was very, right. very deep. Exactly. So, but anyway, the Righteous Brothers before Love and Feeling, both Bobby and Bill would sing the song together throughout the whole right, song. Dual lead vocals. Exactly. When we f- finished singing the song for him. Uh, Bobby said, well, what am I supposed to do, you know, while the big guy is singing? And, he, and Phil didn't miss a beat. He said, you, you, go, you go straight to the bank. <laughs> so I also read uh, that um, You've Lost That Love and Feeling was a placeholder title when you oh, yes, and Cynthia originally wrote it. Yeah, we called it a dummy title. And I remember when we when we when he, we played it for Phil, we, we said to him that now this is just a dummy title, Phil. He said, "No, it isn't, man. That's the title." You know, <laughs> he, he he sounded like Ahmed Erdogan. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was his idol. <laughs> but um, I mean, just listening, uh, just listening back to that song, even now, 
you know, the lyrics of that song are so heartbreakingly real, you know? Yeah, absolutely. She, Cynthia really came up with a, a great lyric, especially the line, something beautiful's dying. Uh, it's just a great yeah, baby. Line. I'm we, crying because something beautiful is dying. Yeah, that's right. Oh my goodness! What a great lyric. It makes me just feel like crying. Cause baby, something beautiful dying. You lost that love feeling. So I also read that with You've Lost That Love and Feeling and, and later the song uh, You're My Soul and Inspiration that you guys wrote, um, also a big hit for the Righteous Brothers, that the Righteous Brothers hits that you guys gave to them helped to define an entirely new genre called Blue-Eyed Soul. Blue-Eyed Soul, that's right. And we didn't know that we were doing that. It just It just happened. You know, ironically, you know, Hall and Oates, who a generation later would become yeah. kind of the upper echelon of, of Blue Eyed Soul in Blue the 70s Soul. and 80s, Daryl Hall ended up singing with you on your album. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so good. That great, great group. You've Lost That Love and Feeling was your first number one hit. Yes, it was. And so... What what did you guys think? I, I read something that after Phil cut the song, it was so different that he wanted to get opinions on it. And he asked you what you thought after he finished, and you told him, you you asked him if it was recorded at the wrong speed. Yes, well, that <laughs> after we were done writing the song, Cynthia and I went back to New York. And uh, about a week later, the phone rings and it's Phil. And that's when this this happened. And he said, look, I want to play you. You've lost our love and feeling. Tell, tell me what you think. So that's when he he played it over the phone, you know. And uh, I kept screaming, Phil, you got it on the wrong speed. You got it on the wrong speed. Because the other way, Bill Medley sounded, you know, <laughs> it sounds like it's on the wrong speed. But uh, it was on the right speed. And thank God for that. Well, the song's in the Grammy Hall of Fame, you know, as, mm -hmm. as one of the greatest recordings of all time. Artists who have covered You've Lost That Love and Feeling. I mean, it's a who's who. It's Elvis, Dionne Warwick, Hall & Oates, Neil Diamond, who duetted with Dolly Parton, a rock yeah. band called The Firm, which was Paul Rogers from Bad Company with Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. You uh -huh. know, th they, they all have put their own spin on your and Cynthia's copyright right. and you lost that love and feeling. And I want to tell you a story that I, I'm pretty sure you don't know. Um, I know as a fan of other songwriters that you're a big fan of Jimmy Webb's. Oh, God, I am a fan. And I, I recently did an interview with Jimmy. And yes. we spoke about his life and his songwriting and the songs that inspired him. And he told right. me a story about the first time that he ever heard You've Lost That Love and Feeling on the radio. Do you know that story? No. So he said that the first time that he heard You've Lost That Love and Feeling on the radio, he was driving and he had to pull over because he couldn't see. 
And he's uh-huh. quoted as saying, if you can listen to that song and drive at the same time, you need to go buy yourself a heart. Uh-huh. Wow. So I think there's a little bit of a mutual admiration society oh, between yeah. you and Cynthia and Jimmy. Oh, yeah, man. He's, so, he's such a great writer. Oh, my goodness. My guy. Such yeah. a great songwriter. Yeah. Um, so just moving on to some of the other songs, we got to get out of this place. We talked about that. It was originally cut by you. Alan Klein gave it to Mickey most Mickey most cut it on the animals. We talked about the good news, bad news story with Donnie Kirshner, you know, sitting you and Cynthia down and telling you that you had the number two song in England, but it wasn't your version. Something else you may not know. There's a big music conference every year in Austin, Texas called South by Southwest. I think I know the story. And and you how know, Bruce correct Bruce, Bruce correct. I was there in person when he gave his keynote in 2012, and he talked uh-huh. about we got to get out of this place. And he actually took out a guitar and started playing it. That's and right. and he said, "I want you to hear this song." And he started playing the Animals version, you know, his own take on on the Animals sure. version of "We Got to Get Out of This Place." And then he looked at the room and said, "You know what? That's every song I've ever written." Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's such a compliment, boy. Talk about a great songwriter there. But, you know, yeah, all of yeah. his songs, you know, uh, so many of them talk about, you know, the desire and the need to get out from where you are. Uh-huh. You know, that's and right. then he says, ironically, he's written his entire, you know, life's work about getting out of where he grew up. And now he lives five uh-huh. minutes away from the house he grew up in. Uh, something, boy. <laughs> So let's talk about kicks. So kicks, you know, you talked about sociological writing and and not just moon, June, spoon writing, but Mm -hmm. songs that really have a deep meaning. You had a friend who was battling drug addiction. You wrote a song that addressed this friend's issue. And I think that you and Cynthia hoped that by this friend hearing the song, that it might help with his addiction. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of narcissistic to, to believe that my song is going to going to change changes addiction. And did it did it work? No, it didn't. It didn't. Matter of fact, it, it got worse as it went along. You know, the the lyric kicks keep getting harder to find. Fine. You know, yeah. a, a lot of people may not know that the song was written about drug abuse. And and I read something interesting that a lot of the garage bands that would end up covering that song, you know, a decade uh-huh. or so later, had no idea it was about drug abuse. Oh my Be- God. Because if they knew it was a preaching, you know, lyric, don't do drugs, kids, they wouldn't right. have wouldn't have um performed it. And one of one of the guys who is quoted as saying that is Paul Stanley from the rock band Kiss, who actually sure. covered the song on a solo album. Oh, yeah, good old Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so the next song, let's let's talk about BJ Thomas for a second, because your song I just can't help believing was his follow-up hit to Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. 
but it was also covered by Elvis. What was it like when somebody like Elvis Presley would record your song? That was that was fantastic. It's like having Sinatra record, record your song. It's a very nice version, by the way, too. Well, I just can't help believing when she slips her hand in my hand and it feels so small and helpless and my fingers fold around it like a glove. I just can't help believing when she's whispering her magic and her tears are shining. Yeah, and it was a hit. It, it, Elvis's live version was a top ten hit in, in, in England. In England, right? I right. I, right. I, I read that. You know, one of the things that I talked to Jimmy Webb about was that Elvis did not cut songs written by other people unless he got publishing because Colonel Colonel Tom wouldn't let him do that. But he recorded uh, several of your songs. Uh, he recorded you've, you've Lost That Love and right. Feeling also. But they didn't look for publishing. No, not that I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who knows? Maybe they, maybe they did, and I, I wasn't told. And Frank Sinatra's covered your songs as well. You've had the great voices of all time record your songs. There's a version somewhere that Frank cut of on Broadway. Oh, I, I didn't know that. I couldn't find it, but I read that he cut I, I think I should, I should interview you. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll try to you find know more it. About, you know more about me than I know about myself. Well, like I said before, Barry, it has been such a pleasure being able to read up on, on your life and the work, you know, your work and Cynthia's work. Because this is, you know, I can't do what you do. I'm not a songwriter. I'm an mm. A&R person. You know, I, mm. I kind of kneel at the shrine of the songwriters and the publishers to try to find hit songs for my artists to record. So the opportunity to be sitting here and talking uh -huh. to you is so meaningful to me, I can't even tell you. Oh, that's, that's really something. I mean, you, what you do is great, man. <laughs> we're, it really we're, is. We're, we're trying. One of the other things that I'm, I'm so impressed by your songwriting ability and Cynthia's songwriting ability is you could have hits in multiple genres. So uh, in 1977, Dolly Parton had her first big crossover hit, which was also the most played country song of 1977 with Here You Come Again, which was originally right. recorded by B.J. Thomas, right? No, it was written for B.J. Oh, Thomas. Got it. But I, th I think that... He ended up recording it after it was a hit. Got it. I think. Got it. You're probably right about that. But that was a massive hit for Dolly Parton. And it was a first, a first number one. First number one country. Yes, for for Dolly. Yeah, and and oh, it was Dolly's first number one. Yeah. Yeah. What was that like hearing her countrified version of your song? She did it exactly the way the way I had written it. I mean, it's basically a countrified version only because of her voice. And and but it's, and she demanded. I read that she, that there was some pedal steel put on there. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> so that she, she wouldn't have been it. abandoned by her Nashville audience. I'm definitely going to be writing. I'm going to interview you after <laughs> this is done. <laughs> like you've done before and wrap my heart round your little finger here you come again just when i'm about to make it work with 
So let's let's talk about sometimes when we touch. You know, again, by the time that sometimes when we touch was written and was a hit, you know, most of your your Brill Building era compatriots were not having hits anymore. No. So talk about Dan Hill and 1977. This song, sometimes when we touch, becomes such a massive hit ballad. The ATV was Cynthia's in my publishing at the, at that time. And uh, I think that he was signed to them, and Dan Hill was signed to them in, in Canada. Got it. And they say, basically fixed uh, Dan Hill up with, uh, with me and Cynthia. Matter of fact, it wasn't with Cynthia. It was it just was you just, and him, uh, yeah. Just, just me and him. And he hadn't and, been used to co-writing, Dan. No, no, I didn't know that, you know. So he came in with a lyric. And I also found out later on after we wrote, sometimes when we touched, our way that he had also written it in a different way originally. So he had his own music and melody to it. Yes, but he which, didn't but tell he, you that. No, he didn't tell you that. When he wrote in that period in his life, he he kind of rambled a little bit when when it came to writing lyrics. He didn't particularly love the, the song. The song as you wrote it. Exactly, because he he was used to writing a certain a different way than, than we did. So what made him change his mind and, and go with the version that you wrote? I don't know. I guess everybody was loving it. Yeah, I mean, somebody who's used to writing songs by themselves and has already written a melody and a lyric, I mean, a melody and music to words that they've written, it takes a lot to throw that away and say, okay, we'll go with this one, but it's a good thing he did. It was a big hit. Sometimes. The honesty's too much And I have to close my eyes And hide I want to hold you till I die Till we both break down and cry I want to hold you Till the fear in me subsides Another interesting thing that I read about that song, the week that that song went into the top five in America, all the other songs in the top five that week in 1977 were written by the Bee Gees. Oh. That was at the the height of Saturday Night Fever. So your song must have been something to be a ballad Uh and cutting through all the, the Bee Gees craziness of 1977. Yeah. Barry Gibbon is a real good writer. Such a great songwriter. Terrific, man. So the next song I want to talk about is Don't Know Much, which was originally recorded by you in 1980, but didn't become a big hit and a Grammy-winning hit until Linda Ronstadt and Aaron Neville cut it in 1989. That's right. Linda held on to that song for almost two years. We went along with it. Because it was Linda Ronstadt, you know. <laughs> but it was also recorded before Linda and Aaron cut it. It was recorded by just, Bill by Bill Medley, Medley and then by Bette Midler under a different title. Yes, the, Bette Midler, really, I really loved, loved her version. I just, just that she changed the title and she changed some of the lyrics. As you know, Cynthia doesn't like hearing that. <laughs> <But anyway. laughs> that won a Grammy for Linda and Aaron. In 1989, what a beautiful version of that song. I don't know much, but I know I love you. 
Just a couple of more songs to talk about before we wrap up. Um, sure. You got a call, you and Cynthia got a call to write a song for a movie, also in the, in the late 80s, a movie that was executive produced by Steven Spielberg, and it was an animated film about a mouse. And they That's asked right. you to write a song called The Mouse in the Moon. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, of course, we didn't use that title. Cynthia came up with the title somewhere out there. And Linda Ronstadt and, and James Ingram, two of your favorite said, singers, got together right. to sing that together. And, you know, that song, I think, has become an instant, an instant stand, standard. It's a beautiful song, beautifully produced as yeah. well. Yeah, I remember when we played it for Spielberg, he said, that's a hit. Wow. And, and, and Cynthia and I were thinking, what, what does he know? That's a hit? That's a, that song's old. Because that song could have been written in the 1940s. That that melody. Well, it just shows the timelessness of the copyright. It's it's yeah, beautiful. That, and ironically, you know, that was 30 years after you started getting cuts and you won the Grammy that year for Song of the Year. So a couple of other songs to mention before we wrap up. I reached out to my staff, my A&R staff at Atlantic, to let them know that I was going to be talking to you today and to see if they had any questions, thinking mm -hmm. that they would be asking me about You've Lost That Love and Feeling, about On Broadway, about Just Once, about, you know, uh, Somewhere Out There, so many songs. Mm -hmm. One of my A&R people, you know what song she wants to know about? What, who put the bomb? No, no, a little later than that. Your song for the film uh, Christmas Vacation with, oh, with Mavis Staples singing. That's right. I produced that with, with two of the guys that she usually has as producer. You hear that every year at Christmas on the radio. It's a, that's it's a right. Song. That's right, yeah. And was that a song where you guys, again, you and Cynthia wrote to order? That one, yes, we did write to order. It's nice to write a holiday song because, you know, at least once a year, somebody's going to dust it on. I know. I know. I enjoyed working with Mavis a lot. What a great singer. She, yeah. And, and a, a nice person, too. It was great, man. It was just great. You know, I'd be remiss to um, not mention that in addition to your songwriting and your singing, you're also a, an esteemed photographer. Yeah, I, I got into photography a while back, and uh, it's, it's very enjoyable, you know, to, to go from one, one idiom to another idiom. And, and your pictures have been um, on exhibit, you know, all over. Yeah, in San Francisco and... Uh, uh, and, and LA, of course, yeah. in yeah. LA, yeah. yeah. 
So are you still taking pictures? Are you still writing songs? What are you doing these days? Well, you know, now that now that we don't have to wear uh, masks, maybe I'll be able to, to, to take some pictures. Take more pictures. Yeah. yeah. So and and obviously, as somebody who's been writing songs, you know, since you were 15, 16 years old, is it something that's in you? Do you still feel the need to write songs? I thought that I wouldn't, but I did, but I I I do. I just wrote a song. I've been fiddling around with this this one song for about the past four months or so. Uh, I I think it's in my system. It's really part of my part of my DNA. You know, on behalf of everybody you know who works inside of Atlantic and 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 Warner Music and and I would you know even go as far as to say the entire music business. We are so thankful for your and Cynthia's legacy of songs and the brilliance of these of, of these copyrights that are just going to last forever. Thank you so much, Barry, for spending time with us today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for a wonderful, wonderful interview. Thank you. It makes me just feel like crying Cause baby, something beautiful found in You lost that love and feeling Oh, that love and feeling You lost that love and feeling Now it's gone Many thanks to Barry Mann for spending time with us today and sharing stories from his incredible career. Make sure to check out our companion playlist to this episode, which has all of the great songs we talked about with Barry. That playlist is available at our website, rockschoolpodcast.com. Don't forget to like us and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And we'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganvard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastino, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.